Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, and Dr. Pietro Bordaletto, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air. I'm your host, Pietro Bordaletto, Media Editor for FNS Reports. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, FNS Editor-in-Chief Kurt Barnhart, and E. Feinberg, FNS Editorial Editor, who continue to hold down the fort with me while the fourth leg to our chair, Dr. Micah Hill, is out. Kurt and Eve, how are you two? Good morning, Pietro. Lovely to be here. Good morning. Great to see you both. Well, as you guys know, we always start with a bit of a shout out to our listeners. And today we, we want to give a special shout out to two trainees, Dr. Ashley Aluko from Weill Cornell and Dr. Akansha Garg from Imperial College London, who reached out to us to let us know that they enjoy listening to the podcast. It sounds like we have a broad readership in the UK. And Dr. Aluko wanted to make sure that everyone knew that the podcast was best consumed while on the treadmill at the gym, her favorite time and place to listen to the podcast. So thank you too for listening. I also want to mention that we got a shout out from a few more miles away into the Middle East. We have uh, Professor Natarajan, who had an interesting conversation about our conversation about uh, uh, embryo transfer and breastfeeding. This is an area that certainly is controversial. I would love to relitigate that in some other forum, but uh, I enjoyed the conversation with you, Eve, last time, and Dr. Rajan had some comments as well, and we appreciate him listening to, the, to it as well. This month's FNS is chock full of great content, not to mention uh, Eve's contribution to the views and reviews section of this month, where we talk a little bit about frozen embryo transfer cycle types and the numerous ways in which embryos can be transferred, the safest way to transfer them, who the best person is to transfer them. We won't be diving to that in depth this month, but I highly suggest everyone take a look at that VNR series, which is really outstanding. We're going to start, as always, with Kurt telling us a little bit about the seminal contribution. And again, a pun is not intended here, but tell us a little bit about longitudinal semen parameter assessment in live birth. Yeah, this is a, a great article from a very expert group of investigators. Elizabeth DeVillis is this, the first author, and Sonny Mumford here at the University of Pennsylvania is the senior author. Um, and it's based on their work while they were at the NIH, a secondary analysis of their FAST trial. And it really looks at an old question with outstanding and very comprehensive methods. The title of this paper is Longitudinal Semen Parameters Assessed and Live Birth, the Variability and Implications for Treatment Strategies. So as I alluded to, this is a well-done study using a large uh, data set, over 2,000 subjects enrolled in the FAST trial. Um, for those of you that you should read this on its own, the FAST trial was a randomized controlled trial to look at the supplementation of zinc and folic acid in terms of fertility and especially improving semen parameters. It ended up to be a negative trial, which is valuable in itself, but therefore gives you a very large, well-qualified cohort to look at some secondary things like what predicts fertility in general. And this is looking at a question that I thought I knew very easily, which is what aspects of semen analysis predict live birth. The beauty of the study is it's so big and it really has multiple aspects of semen analysis. This is three different ones they can average over time and it looks at live birth. So all the things we've been saying in our podcast, Stephen Pietro, you know, be careful about a small sample size, be careful about a surrogate outcome, be careful about variability in your, in your outcome, are all kind of taking care of this. So I thought I knew a lot about this before the paper was written, but you know, when you start looking at all these limitations and then a really well-conducted trial, you can really delve into the results and say, ah, now I can be a little bit more confident about these things. So again, please read the statistics. It's exceedingly well done on how they um, average out the three baseline semen analysis, how it looks at repeated measures, how it um, takes care of confounders. I won't go into all of that specifically other than to say that, you know, well done. But what it really does is therefore looks at what are the specific aspects of semen analyses that predict live birth. And not only that, they can break it down by specific semen analysis, but they can look at whether it's an unassisted conception, whether the conceptions with was ovulation induction, and with a conception with IVF. So remember, we're looking at the baseline characteristics before treatment, which ultimately predict the outcome after treatment. So let's start with, I think, the most intuitive one, which is they lump together unassisted conception with ovulation induction because nothing was done to the semen analysis. And they showed that 
not, I guess, a surprise, but that many aspects of the semen analysis were associated with live births. I guess I'm, pro- you know, Sonny and, and Enrique will probably yell at me about this because I probably shouldn't be looking directly at the number, but they what they present in the tables is the absolute difference in percentage per 100 births. So, for example, if your concentration is lower than 15 million, you're down 19.4 live births per 100. So that's the metric I'm going to be using. And that I point that out because that's the largest difference. And I guess what I was saying is I shouldn't be looking directly just at the largest difference. But the most important ones are, again, concentration and count. But interestingly, all the parameters were important. Anything from morphology to viability to motility, the total sperm count. That makes sense, right? I mean, that's not a surprise. But then you say, all right, what if I treat them? And looking at that baseline, let's start with just treating them with IUI. So there's lots of ways to do IUI and sperm preparation, but now we've theoretically prepared and gotten the best sperm, as I tell my patients. And still, the concentration is showing a lower live birth. In other words, if your initial concentration was low, you have a lower live birth. And the same with total modal sperm count. So what it's telling me is that the IUI fixes many of those parameters, but not all. And still your baseline sperm count and your baseline total modal count is still predictive of live birth. Eve and Pietro, that doesn't surprise you, does it? But to, but to see it quantitative like this, I thought that was kind of neat. Did you have any thoughts on that? No, I mean, I I totally agree. And I think that, again, it was a really well done study. What I thought was interesting, too, though, was the difference in variability from month to month. And maybe I misread it, Kurt, but tell me if I'm wrong. But it seemed like there was a difference of 24 million from one male to the same male over time. And that struck me as a pretty large difference in count over serial samples. And morphology was 2% difference um, over the same male across samples too, which I thought from a counseling perspective are really helpful numbers. Someone will ask you, if I were to repeat this two months from now, is this concentration that's 12 million going to go back to 112 million? And probably not. And is my morphology really going to drastically improve? Probably not. But from a counseling perspective, super helpful to have these numbers. Absolutely. And I think that what they did, which is neat and sophisticated, is that they were able to statistically handle that variation. And it again, it's, we're all lazy. I only get one semen analysis many times, but it shows you that you really do need more than one to pick up that variation. And then when you look at that over time, you can see, oh, wait a minute, that, that count really did matter. You're right, Pietro. It's not going to, as I tell my patients all the time, it's not going to go from four to 100, but it might go from four to 16 or you know, 16 to 30. And um, we just can't look at one value. What I think was so interesting about this trial and made it so difficult to recruit for the trial was that males were identified at the beginning of their treatment, and then they were supposed to do five to six semen analyses longitudinally over time. And so this cohort that we have really has data from numerous semen analysis from the same individual. Right. Now, let me get to the final punchline of this paper was we talked about um, unassisted conception and NOI, but they also did the analysis for IVF. So now we've bypassed this, the semen, so to speak. So so should a sperm count matter if you conceive with IVF? And the answer was generally not. Most of those variables were no longer predictive, the count, the motility, because you're you're overcoming it with in vitro fertilization. However, the one aspect which is going to intrigue everybody was that morphology seemed to matter. Now, we could have probably an entire podcast on whether morphology matters. In this case, it mattered by about five pregnancies per per hundred, um, and the, the cutoff was less than four. But it does show that perhaps even as good as we are at identifying a semen analysis and how it predicts live birth IVF may not correct everything, especially if you're picking the single sperm. By the way, 80% of these uh, IVF cycles had ICSI, so we can't attack the other question I like a lot, whether you need ICSI for treating abnormal morphology. It just was impressive to me to say, look, all of these things affect unassisted pregnancy. We correct most of them with IUI, but we correct practically all of them with IVF. I guess I should have known that, but it yeah, just was it's just very mathematically nice. I <laughs> loved it. And I really liked the part about understanding that IVF is not the cure-all. Or, and we can't necessarily say because maybe ICSI is the cure-all. And maybe those patients who had low morphology really were the ones who would have benefited from ICSI and didn't have ICSI. So I think that's an important caveat when interpreting this study. But I think similar to egg quality, like IVF cannot always overcome poor egg quality and it cannot always 
overcome poor sperm quality. And so I think that it just shows us that there are limitations to where our technology has the potential to help. Kurt, what did you think about the DNA fragmentation part of this and specifically table three? Well, yeah, I was going to get to that. There's some other ancillary findings as well, which is that the DNA fragmentation didn't matter. It didn't seem to matter both in terms of baseline characteristics, meaning it, it didn't matter in the trial, by the way. You know, you couldn't you couldn't improve it with zinc. Uh, and it also didn't predict anything. It didn't predict live birth in unassisted pregnancy or with IUI or with IVF. The other thing that I, it's stating the obvious, but what struck me was that just the success rates in the trial. Unassisted was 40%. Whereas the IUI was 26, so you've got a generally fertile group which gets pregnant on their own. Then you've got some that have abnormal semen analysis that you can help to some degree. And then IVF success rate was 61%. So from that perspective, IVF, we're still doing the right thing. I was going to say treatment helps. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So interestingly, I'll, I'll share a little bit more about the journal with you. Interestingly, this paper was not favorably reviewed because everybody seemed to say we already knew this. But I'm really glad it got through the review process because sometimes it's just not a novel finding you're looking for, but it's a really well done finding. So you can say with this trial that what we knew was actually correct with really good, solid methods. And in my opinion, as an editor, I think that's a really valuable contribution. Helps counseling, helpful point estimates, helpful for people who are going to be publishing in this space down the road. I could not agree more. Wonderful. Well, let's pivot away from semen and go back to the uterus and the placenta. And we're going to be talking about one of my very favorite topics, obstetric outcomes from ART-conceived pregnancies, specifically placenta previa. And if you will allow me for a moment for us to all go back to our collective OB knowledge that's filed away somewhere, but remember that a placenta previa is a placenta that implants within two centimeters from the internal os and sometimes may cover the os entirely. Importantly, it occurs in less than 1% of non-ART conceived pregnancies. They're associated with significant maternal and perinatal morbidity, risks of maternal and fetal hemorrhage, as well as premature delivery and hysterectomy. The risk factors that we generally think of in the non-ART population include prior C-section, multiple gestations, and advanced maternal age. Older data has suggested that ART-conceived pregnancies are three times more likely to be affected by placenta previa with fresh transfer, trophectoderm biopsy, and thin linings at the time of transfer all being reported on in the literature, albeit inconsistently. This study from Daniela Carusi out of Massachusetts, specifically the Brigham and Women's Hospital, looked at Massachusetts outcome study of ART database and linked it to SART data to identify ART cycles from 2011 to 2017, which allowed them to create their main data set. They then went a step further to get cycle level data from both the Brigham and MGH's ART programs to form a supplementary data set. Patient and cycle level data were used to fit a multivariable regression model to identify independent risk factors for placenta previa in ART conceived pregnancies. In total, and again, Kurt, I know you like big data, 18,000 cycles were available for analysis, of which 553 pregnancies were delivered with a placenta previa, or 2.9%, which is in contrast to that less than 1% in the non-ART general population that's reported in the literature. So what do they find regarding independent risk factors? Well, interestingly, endometriosis, fresh transfer in autologous cycles, and the use of controlled ovarian hyperstimulation were all found to be associated with significantly higher relative risks of placenta previa, whereas those general obstetric risk factors as multiparity and C-section did not to be, appear to be associated in this ART population. Now, the next question you may be asking yourself is, why? So some have suggested that it's related to placental hypertrophy, altered endometrial blood flow, abnormal uterine contractions, and this is true for all pregnancies, but with ART pregnancies, you add in transfer far away from the fundus, the inducement of contractions during a traumatic embryo transfer that may push that embryo lower into the uh, uterine cavity and allow it to implant closer to the cervical loss. All these things are possible, but there's definitely not a definitive answer. I did want to end by highlighting one point about endometriosis. Placenta previa has been found to be associated with deep infiltrating endometriosis in the general population, particularly in the case of rectovaginal disease. Some have suggested that it's due to altered immune or inflammatory environment or even disorders in uterine peristalsis. No one really knows. 
Some have even suggested that it's actually from the retroflexion that the rectovaginal disease causes that makes transfers harder and thus elicits more contractions at the time of embryo transfer. Again, pushing that embryo lower into the uterine cavity at the time of transfer and subsequent implantation. Ultimately, very few of these risk factors that these authors identified were modifiable, but it could be helpful from a counseling perspective. I'm not sure that this data tells us that going from fresh autologous to frozen or going from endo to treated endo are going to offer any risk modification. Those studies still need to happen. But I think, again, helpful for us to help inform our patients what these risks are in the event that they have a history, are worried about this history, or you just want a really fully informed patient. Kurt, need your thoughts? I looked at it also another way, Pietro. That was an excellent presentation. But I agree, this paper, in my mind, wasn't designed to inform how we changed practice. But it is interesting to think that risk factors might be different on when ART conceived pregnancy versus an unassisted pregnancy. And that should be you know, a, a springboard for, for answering the questions you post. Why? You know, what's the difference here? I'll get, again, I'll share more about the review of this paper. Again, some of the reviewers didn't like this because it didn't fit their understanding of, well, how could they be different risk factors? I mean, that was a big controversy getting this paper through. But my ultimate take on it was, I don't know, maybe, maybe endometriosis is a false positive risk factor, but it doesn't matter. It's intriguing. It's new evidence. It tells us more about what we're doing and the physiology of the patients we're treating. That's why I like this paper. Yeah, I have two thoughts. One is, what if the embryos are just being transferred too low? Like, rather than the contractility theory, what if the physician who's doing the embryo transfer is simply transferring in the wrong spot? Second, I think that given the prevalence of endometriosis in an infertility population, it's been reported to be as high as 30%. I'm not surprised that if this finding really is true, then ART pregnancies have a higher percentage of placenta previa than the general population because more people who have endometriosis do IVF compared to patients who conceive without medical assistance. So that part did not surprise me at all, but I, I agree that it's, it's a very novel finding that endometriosis may be associated with placental implantation abnormalities. And to that point, one thing that we do think about, we think about this a lot in our practice when we design a frozen embryo transfer protocol for a patient with endometriosis is perhaps these patients do better in a low estrogen environment. And oftentimes we will use things like aromatase inhibitors or letrozole preparation to create a lower endometrial environment. And I think that there are data, and there's a lot of data from my chair's lab, Dr. Bulin's lab, that looks at endometriosis and the impact of endometriosis on the endometrium itself, which is, I think, interesting if we think about endometriosis being the implantation of the endometrium outside of the uterus, but it also can impact the lining itself. Going back to the teleology of it all, it would be kind of, I don't know, presumptive of us to think that all pregnancies were the same and that, you know, an unassisted pregnancy is not somehow different than an ART pregnancy. So again, I don't think this paper is going to tell me what to do in my practice, but I really like the idea that it makes us think beyond everything in obstetrics is the same or all risk factors are the same. So keep this research coming. I, it, it really, I enjoyed reading it. It underscores the idea that ART conceived pregnancy should be part of the obstetric sign out when we hand off patients to our obstetric colleagues. This was a pregnancy achieved in this way. And with better data, they can help hopefully help risk modify, better counsel, better manage these pregnancies to make them safer. Uh, interesting point, Pietro. And we should have a we have should have a journal club on this because that doesn't mean every pregnancy is high risk. It just means it's more information that we should put into our mental artificial intelligence and and put it in. It doesn't mean that um, everybody needs a C-section and everybody has to have the child go to the NICU and et cetera. Amen. And it also doesn't mean that everyone needs to see maternal fetal medicine. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Kurt, let's pivot back to you. We're going to go from big data to even bigger data and talk a little bit about SART data with regards to cost effectiveness for planned oocyte cryopreservation. Yeah, I seem to have a theme in the papers I'm reviewing today, which is how do I confirm what perhaps was intuitive, but when, with really well done studies to you know to give me true data. So this study is a SART data cost-effective analysis of planned oocyte cryopreservation versus in-feature fertilization with pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy 
considering ideal family size. So this wonderful paper from Jennifer Backinson is the uh, first author, and Carol Goldman is the senior author. Also, it seems to be featuring um, some other well-known people in our field, such as um, uh, Sunny and Eve. And this paper was discussed in one of our recent journal clubs at the uh, SREI Fellows Retreat as well. So it, this is an age-old question. Well, I can't be that old because we've only been doing IRT for a while. But, it, but it's a, a very intriguing question, which is, if I know as a young woman that I am not going to have children in my 30s, but I will have children in my 40s or I want children in my 40s. Is it better for me to bank my eggs early or is it better for me to use the technology available to me later? So is it better basically to say, I can see my future and bank my eggs now or wait until I'm 40 and then use best program available to me to do IVF or is your PGTA. So it's a cost-effective analysis looking at basically the effectiveness of both of those strategies as well as the cost of both of those strategies. And what's novel about this study is that it, it gets you some really nice data. It uses the SART data as real-world data. It does a nice job in assessing the costs and it allows for the complexity now that's in in people's armamentarium. You know, it, it allows for cryopreservation and an IVF later with frozen embryo transfers with the use of PGTA, either banking or alone, and also theoretically in one of the models, oocyte cryopreservation and then PGTA later. So it, you know, gives you a much more comprehensive idea of what your options are. So I gave that a big introduction because at the SCREI conference, the, in, the findings were just intuitive to everybody. So I didn't want to just say, look, we already knew this because it really took a lot of information to get there. But it basically says, if you know you're not going to want to be pregnant between age 33 and let's just say 40 to make it easy, it's really cost effective to freeze your eggs first rather than waiting until you do IVF later. And especially in this paper looks into whether you have two children for having a larger family to, again, bank your eggs first. So the, the meat of the matter of this paper is probably, I don't know, the specifics are, are a little bit less important, but the findings are really kind of neat. If you compare in the first model, egg banking before the age of 33, compared to IVF later, or even with IVF and PGTA, your success rate is jumping basically from roughly 50% to 73%, and your cost is saving about $1,000. Now, Every cost effectiveness has this problem. I mean, they use good costs, but success rates and costs are going to change. But just suffice it to say, it's it's just better just to start earlier. The more complicated models are, are worth some time too. You know, is it better to freeze your eggs or is it better to go through IVF with banking for PGTA or go through IVF without banking for PGTA, especially if you want two children? And again, the model nicely shows that your success rate climbs to wearing the most effective the ones are if you want more than one child to, to bank your eggs twice before the age of 33, rather than relying on IVF in this case, starting at age 39, but, you know, multiple cycles of IVF with or without banking and with or without PGTA. So really neat study, very good for counseling. I'm going to tee it up for you guys because the conversation at the SREI retreat was, this is really good data, but makes a lot of assumptions. And um, the most intriguing assumption was the no try zone that was used between age 33 and 40. So it doesn't take into the account the woman that is trying between those ages. It really is only a model for, I'm pretty sure my career is going to take me that I'm not going to have a baby between 33 and 40. So what should I do? As opposed to you know, a woman that's just saying, well, maybe I'm not married and maybe I'll find somebody at 35 or 37 or 39. What should I do in that case? So what do you guys think of this paper? Well, I'm clearly biased <laughs> here. So, you know, we loved, I loved baby budgeting as a paper and my biggest criticism of baby budgeting, I thought it was elegantly done and really beautiful, but my biggest criticism was it only took the assumption that women wanted to have one child. And what we tried to do in this paper, and what I think we, you know, with all of the criticisms and whatnot, I do think that we were able to show that if you consider ideal family size, then you want to bank more eggs. And while I agree with you, there are some devils in the details in terms of what age do you start trying to conceive I still think that if you start trying to conceive at 38, 39 for your first child, you're going to run into problems with your second. And so really the whole point of the paper was to show 
that when we counsel patients, we need to think not just about the first baby, but we need to think about the whole family size. And at every step along the way, whether it's egg banking or whether it's PGT at 40, we don't want to just transfer that first euploid embryo. We really want to ask the question of how many kids do you want to have and create embryos um, that can be used down the line for the second child. And so that was the gist of what we were trying to do. But I we had a lot of difficult conversations sitting around the table trying to strategize Given some of the holes in the SART data, we didn't have enough patients that came back to use their eggs. And so we had to use some creative strategies to answer the question of what is the blastocyst development rate going to be? What is the percent euploid rate that we're going to see once we do PGT? And so we, I think, took a very creative approach to it fully understanding that it is going to be one of the limitations of the study. But we looked at 10,000 cycles. We got data from donor egg bank that was generously shared. We got data from almost 10,000 cycles looking at blastocyst development rate, figuring that donor eggs are similar in that we're looking at egg banking in women under 33, which is the same population as donor egg bank used. And then with regard to percent aneuploidy, we got data from 100,000 cycles from Natera and looked at percent embryos that were euploid and aneuploid. The other point I want to show is that table one looks at number average number of eggs retrieved by age. And I think that's also a really interesting counseling nugget. And I think it really speaks to the fact that we use the assumption of roughly 15 eggs for one live birth. And that's how we came up with the idea of two cycles. We really modeled it based on egg number and based on roughly 30 eggs banked. Yeah, I'm a very quantitative person, as you might have figured out by now. And what I like most about the cost-effective analysis is, is that um, is the sensitivity analyses, because you you know not every assumption in your analysis is going to be sparred on. I mean, like you no know, analysis in a hurricane is going to tell you exactly where it's going to go. But when you look at the sensitivity analysis, you can see that you, graphically you can really see that there really is no model where you're going to save money by doing IVF later. I mean, there is a model where if you bank your eggs too late, you know, maybe in your in your late 30s, that it's not cost effective. But you can really kind of see how these two curves complement each other and get this concept down again, mathematically, not just based on your intuition or what you had in the clinic. Yeah. So, and I want to give a huge shout out to Carrie Flanagan, who's one of the middle authors on the paper who really championed the sensitivity analysis down to uh, down to the egg number and down to the age. If you're looking for something helpful from this paper beyond what we've already shared, take a look at figure two when you get a moment. Figure two, I think, is a, you know, when a figure tells the whole story, I think figure two tells the whole story. And from a counseling perspective, from a giving a talk, if you're talking about preserving oocytes in your early 30s, this figure, I think, just has a wealth of information and really kind of drives home the main point that you have to be thoughtful about not only the first pregnancy, but also the second pregnancy. So again, to complement this paper, it's not going to tell us what to do every day because every woman is very different and not every woman is the quote unquote woman in this paper, but it does really quantitate, which is what I like the best, what we think we already know about you know the, the cost savings with early egg freezing, the need for potential more than one cycles. And as good as we are at IVF with PGTA, you really can't overcome the issue of it's difficult to help people that are already in their late 30s and early 40s. Eve, let's transition over to you and tell us a little bit about your systematic review in this month's FNS. So the title of this paper is Systematic Review of Subsequent Pregnancy Outcomes in Couples with Parental Abnormal Chromosomal Karyotypes and Recurrent Pregnancy Loss. And this was by Shan Lee and others from the First Affiliated Hospital, and I can't pronounce the name of Xi'an Zhaotong, University of China. And this was a systematic review and meta-analysis that looked at studies of patients who have RPL where one partner carries a translocation, and they defined RPL as two or more clinical pregnancy losses. They did two separate analyses. The first, they looked at the natural history comparing RPL patients with translocation to normal karyotype when considering conception without medical intervention. And then the second part specifically compares PGTSR 
to conception without medical intervention. And the next part confused me a little bit. They looked at, quote, first pregnancy live birth and cumulative live birth. And I think this is important. I couldn't quite wrap my head around how you could have a first live birth above zero in an RPL population. But what I came to realize is that what they are calling first pregnancy is actually the first pregnancy after the diagnosis of RPL was made. So they're really looking at the chance of next pregnancy after those two losses or however many losses when somebody seeks assistance and then cumulative likelihood of live birth. So first, let's look at the medically unassisted conception. They had pooled data that showed a significant difference in first pregnancy live birth between normal and abnormal karyotype couples. And I think that's not surprising. For those with an abnormal karyotype, the mean first pregnancy live birth was 58.5% compared to 72% in those with normal karyotypes. And this was a statistically significant difference. So again, I think overall it shows a an a decent prognosis and a difference between those who carry a translocation and those who don't, but still overall nice likelihood of achieving conception. So translocations did worse, but those with chromosome inversions did not do worse. And I think this is in line with how I typically counsel patients. I've seen a number of patients who have an inversion of chromosome nine, and I've always counseled them that it's not associated with worse outcomes. So I think it is good to see these data that support that, as well as data from the original studies that were out there. Interestingly, and I think not surprisingly, cumulative live birth rates were not different between all groups. The second part of the study looked at whether PGT improved outcomes, and there were pooled data from the two included studies that examine this. And I think it's important to know that the numbers were very low. There was a lower rate of miscarriage in couples who utilized PGT. The miscarriage rate was 24% versus 65%, but the cumulative live birth rates were comparable. So I think in overall, this is pretty consistent with things that we already knew, but my take-home points for this is that PGTSR can be a helpful tool to reduce miscarriage rate the overall cumulative success rate was not different. And I think that there's one point that the paper does not address, and that's the risk of Asherman syndrome in these patients. And so when counseling someone on whether to pursue PGT for a translocation, my arguments are typically for a faster time to ongoing pregnancy, reduce suffering from pregnancy loss, and of course, <laughs> balance with suffering associated with IVF, and a lower miscarriage rate may mean less risk of uterine complications from miscarriage. And so that additional counseling piece about the risk of Asherman's from having multiple miscarriages, I think needs to be part of that conversation. But overall, I think that you can counsel patients, do nothing. Ultimately, you'll end up in the same way. Or if you do want to utilize PGT technology, it's not going to increase your overall likelihood of having a baby, but it will get you there faster. You'll have fewer losses and you may have less uterine trauma in the interim. Kurt, are you going to make a Miffy Miso point here? <laughs> well, I was I was going to say this is a fun paper because it really is like the proverbial, you know, glass half full or half empty. You can really take this information and look at it anyway. I tend to look at this saying that, you know, all of this technology really is not helping this situation other than recognizing what you're going to get for your cost. So in other words, is it worth it for you to have this extra cost, this technology to reduce the risk of having a subsequent miscarriage? In some women, the answer is absolutely yes. In some women, the answer is, why would I you know, put myself through this cost, trauma, and difficulty when I'm going to end up with this in the same place? So it's one of these things where it tells you the data so you can look at the glass and say, is it half full, is it half empty, or is the glass just the wrong size? Yeah, I think that, it, and again, maybe this is gender difference between somebody who's physically experienced a miscarriage versus somebody who has not physically experienced a miscarriage. And I think that there, there is this tendency to underestimate how traumatic undergoing a miscarriage can be for a woman and for a couple. And so I think that there's not really a price that, yeah, obviously everything has a price and statistically things have a price, but 
I think you have to assess what is the trauma and what is the cost, the physical cost, the emotional cost of that miscarriage to that couple. And I think that there are couples that would look at this and would say, wow, there's technology that can prevent another miscarriage. That's the last thing on earth I want to go through. And I think it's very rare usually. And again, I see a biased sample size because I see the patients who have miscarriage who seek assistance because they don't want to go through it again. But I don't have patients in my practice when you offer assistance and you counsel very realistic and very carefully who say, thanks, but no thanks. I'll just have a couple more miscarriages. It's sadly usually the patients that can't afford to go through IVF who are relegated to additional suffering. But again, to put the glass half full lens on it is that next first live birth was 58%. So it is not, it's not unreasonable to think that the next time you try, you're going to have a higher likelihood of achieving success. But 58% versus 72%, like, thank you, but I'll take my 72%. You're right, Eve. It's hard to have this conversation because I've, I've never had a miscarriage and never will. But it does show you that we can all carry our biases. And I'm not trying to show you mine or yours. I'm just saying this this allows you to do this because I think as a profession, we're biased that we treat people that come to us and accept the treatment. But there are a lot of people that are very fearful of all this technology and never come here and really don't want months of injections and ultrasounds and being prodded and, and everything we do. So I'm just bringing out the point that we're good at what we do, but that doesn't mean everybody wants to do what we have to offer. Totally. I totally agree with you on that. And I think that you have to be really careful. And I think I'm always really careful of the biases that I bring to the table and really try to separate my own personal experiences from the data that's out there. But I I do sometimes think that looking at it from a different lens can shed some light. So hopefully I've shed some light on that for our listeners. And Pietro, to bring it back together, what what do you think of this? What I, at the very least, biases aside, this is telling us that not all genetic issues that are found are the same, and not all of them need the same treatment. So, what what did you think of this overall paper? Yeah, I think you summed it up perfectly. I did want to just comment on Eve's point about bringing your own biases to the table. I think one of the things that we have not historically done so great as a field is the idea of shared decision-making and really understanding what the patient values. And I think there are fields that are much more interventional, like urogynecology, GYN oncology, where you really have to sit down and come up with what does the patient value as an outcome. And we assume in our field that it's live birth, but it could be the avoidance of a procedure to manage a miscarriage. It could be the avoidance of needles. It could be the avoidance of having to perform genetic testing on embryos if that's not something they value religiously or culturally. Um, So I think this paper, with all the data that it brings, to me just underscores that you have to have the data to bring to the table to the patient, but you have to understand what the patient values so you figure out what to do next. I think it's a ripe research opportunity. In the field of urogynecology, they have several shared decision-making electronic tools, and I would love to see some of those emerge um, in our field to really prioritize what are what is the most important thing for couples and having them rates like intervention, non-intervention type modalities would be fantastic. This is an interesting topic that I'm going to take a second to go on a tangent on. This kind of qualitative research or mixed method research is really missing from our field. We're very good at quantitating the data like this paper does in this nicely done systematic review. But what we do with that information is really unknown. I'm starting to explore a little bit with the pregnancy of unknown location, you know, the idea that there are multiple options and what do you like? And we're struggling with it because we really do put our views into our patients rather than sitting back and say, what would you like during given these situations? So that's a call for more research and also a call for a little bit more listening in, in the exam room rather than just telling. It catches patients off guards, doesn't it? When you ask them, what do you want or what do you value? I had a patient last week who I offered that question up who was faced with a very difficult decision. And she said, no one had ever asked me that before. It was funny to be in the position where I could have an opinion or offer my thoughts on what you think I should do. I really think that I have that conversation with nearly every patient on what are your priorities? What's the most important? Here are the risks, here are the benefits. And what do you want to do? And I think that approaching reproductive medicine from that vantage point works in my practice. And I would encourage more um, 
more people to to take on that shared decision making model. I think we actually do a very good job of it. I think we probably don't talk about it as much. Well, continuing with the whiplash that has been this podcast, uh, we're going to pivot back to endometriosis. And I want to tell you a little bit about an article entitled Prevalence of Endometrioma in Deep Infiltrating Endometriosis at Transvaginal Ultrasound Exam in Subfertile Women Undergoing ART, a Prospective Cohort Study. Kurt and Eve, we have the Swedes to thank for another really helpful study. These authors sought to estimate the prevalence of ovarian and deep infiltrating endo as assessed by transvaginal ultrasound using the IDEA terminology in a large cohort of Swedish women who are subfertile about to undergo their first ART cycle. For those unfamiliar, IDEA, I-D-E-A, is the International Deep Endometriosis Analysis Group, which has come up with standardization of terms and definitions used to describe ultrasound location and measurement of deep infiltrating endolesions in the pelvis. This study took place at the Skåne University Hospital in Malvo, Sweden, between 2018 and 2021. This prospective study enrolled women 25 to 40 with BMIs less than 30 with known subfertility. All women filled out a questionnaire regarding surgical history, potential endometriosis-like symptoms, and previous medical treatment for these symptoms. The cool thing about this study was a single sonographer, who was a gynecologist, performed all of the transvaginal ultrasounds. All scans had a systematic examination of the uterus, the endometrium, the adnexa, as well as the anterior and posterior compartments, including the bowel, the ligaments, the vaginal sidewall, and the fornices. They even assessed mobility of pelvic structures to identify the presence or absence of adhesive pelvic disease. In total, 1,191 women were included in this study. And here's the fun facts. Endometriotic lesions were found in 21.8% of these women. Of these, 5% had previously confirmed endometriosis. 10% of women had endometriomas. And 17.2% were found to have deep infiltrating endo. Only 6% had both DIE and endometriomas. I think we all remember this, but the most common location of endometriosis in the pelvis were the uterosacral ligaments followed by ovarian endometriosis in the form of endometriomas. Less than 5% of women were found to have an obliterated pouch of Douglas. Like I told you, there was some survey data that was collected in the study. Women with sonographic evidence of endo, again, that 21.8% group, reported higher visual analog scales of pain regarding dysmenorrhea, non-cyclic pelvic pain, and dyspareunia than women without endometriosis, despite there being an overlap in the ranges of all of these different symptoms. It's worth noting that 98% of women with endometriosis reported dysmenorrhea, whereas 68% of women without endometriosis also reported dysmenorrhea, underscoring the importance of keeping a broad differential when evaluating other pelvic pain generators, such as IBS, for example. Kurt and Eve, I love this paper because it really highlights the utility of ultrasound as a diagnostic tool. And I'm really quite bullish on the use of high-quality pelvic ultrasound as becoming the diagnostic tool of choice for endometriosis. I think as the equipment's gotten better, our understanding of the disease has gotten better, and certainly the imaging techniques have improved, I think it's really amazing on what we can see non-invasively. I think couple imaging with non-invasive serum biomarkers, which I think we're on the road towards, I think we're at the precipice of having a huge percentage of women who are suffering from pelvic pain. We're going to give them the opportunity to achieve a diagnosis sooner without requiring surgery. But I think for our field specifically, I think it's going to really help us sort out this bucket category of subfertile or unexplained infertility a lot better than we have it sorted out now. What do you two think? I agree. What I will say is I thought that I really liked how the authors had the pictures of the endometriosis. And I I think it's really subtle. I don't know. There were a few pictures that were incredibly obvious, like the endometriosis in the bladder, but some of the bowel or the anterior abdominal wall. I'm not convinced, uh, full disclosure, looking at those photos that you can reliably say that that's an endometriotic nodule. I'd be curious to see what other people think. Yeah, I have two thoughts on this. I love the idea of a potential non-invasive diagnosis of endometriosis. That The fact that you still have to relegate women to surgery to get a definitive treatment is is just silly. And the fact that many payers are hiding behind that to, you know, withhold expensive medications or force women to go surgery is is just terrible. Having said that, this kind of research is tough. You know, as an editor, it, there's 
again, there's two two thoughts. One is that it's really hard to expand this to everybody. That the expertise here is phenomenal. But when you start having this as a diagnostic criteria for everybody in every ultrasound suite, it's you're going to have a, a tremendous amount of false negatives and false positives. And then as clinicians, we have to figure out what we're going to do with those things. In fact, False negatives and false positives are not even in our lingo most of the time. So we want to just yes or no. So um, this is a really neat evolving field. I really appreciated the paper just to show us that we're not there yet, but we're getting somewhere. Eve, why don't you take us home discussing perinatal outcomes of singleton and twin pregnancies using donor versus partner sperm? Thanks, Pietro. This was a paper by Christopher Allen with senior author Ava Maheshwari. And the goal of this study was to determine the association between donor versus partner sperm on perinatal outcomes of live births in singletons and twins using the UK Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, HFEA, registry. And they evaluated a 25-year time period with nearly 177,000 singleton and 45,000 twin gestations. The primary outcomes of interest were gestational age at delivery and birth weight. And then they also collected information on congenital anomalies. Information on maternal age, cause of infertility, IVF, ICSI, and fresh or frozen cycle was also collected and analyzed. And a big, um, just I want to flag this, the BMI data were not available for any of the participants. Overall, the findings are incredibly reassuring. And without getting too bogged down by numbers and odds ratios, I know it's been a long podcast. Here's the big picture rundown. (laughs) First, donor sperm is safe. All joking aside, the use of donor sperm was associated with a reduced proportion of very preterm birth and very low birth weight, as well as a lower proportion of congenital anomalies. For twin gestations, preterm births did not reach statistical significance, but very low birth weight and congenital anomalies had the same findings as singletons. Kurt's going to say that we all have our own biases. <laughs> I think I have shown my cards in earlier conversations today. My biases for sure lean towards demonstrating the safety of ART. But I do think this paper is a nice addition to our literature to show that donor sperm is not associated with worse outcomes. And I think another really important nugget from this paper is that we cannot separate the indication for treatment from the findings. When adverse outcomes happen, we must consider the predisposing risk factors. And I think time and time again, the data support infertility as a risk factor for adverse outcomes. I think many of the patients who are using donor sperm are healthy females who either don't have a partner, have a partner that doesn't have sperm, or have a partner that has severe male factor infertility. And so the population of patients who use donor sperm had better outcomes overall. And so I think rather than look at it from saying like, is donor sperm safe? Like, Yes, donor sperm is safe. Like again, I take the opposite. Um, I take the opposite side of it, and I I say that that these data really support that infertility is probably the biggest risk factor that we face. Kurt, what's your uh, what's your take on this? Yeah, what do you think about the unmeasured confounding here, Kurt? There's obviously some notable things that are missing from this data set. I, I generally agree with you, Eve. I just think we just don't want to go too far in the findings of one paper. Um, I agree that's reassuring that donor sperm doesn't propose risks, but I'm not yet willing to say that infertility is the main risk factor for some of the morbidity we see with all of our ART. Maybe it's not with donor sperm. That's a relatively minor intervention. Uh, but um, you know, a lot of the data that I have reviewed um, shows that there is risk because you're infertile, but there's also more risk added on to that because of some of the manipulation that we have as well. So I don't, I want to just, I just don't want to be too simple for the listeners of our podcast saying that it's all based on the underlying diagnosis. Yeah, no, I agree. And I don't want to oversimplify it, but I think that we can't ignore that the underlying diagnosis plays a part in that risk. Yeah, I, I agree. I think infertility is the canary in the coal mine. I think infertility, it bodes well for health risk for the woman. I think that it uh, it makes the pregnancy more complicated. I think all of that is true, which is why it's such a wonderful field to work in and study. But yeah, I mean, one thing I'm surprised that we haven't yet seen 
And maybe somebody who's listening will take the initiative and, and do this study. But I'd be really curious to look at the that the prenatal and antenatal and delivery outcomes of males who are pursuing same-sex reproduction, because there you're really taking a healthy male, and again, I'm maybe presuming a healthy male population with a donor egg into a gestational carrier. And I think that's probably the closest that we will come to being able to separate the effect of infertility from the effect of the technology. And so I would love to see like large numbers, longitudinal outcomes in these pregnancies that are conceived from donor egg and gestational carrier um, in a couple that doesn't really doesn't have infertility. And I think that that to me is, is really going to be valuable data to show, to tease apart the effect of the technology itself. Kurt, I had a final uh, statistical comment or question for you here. Since this is a data set that covered 26 years of data from the HFEA, um, when thinking about adjustment for things that have happened over the course of 26-year period in ART, how do you view using just the year of treatment as a as a covariate in a regression model? Do you think that that's enough, or do you think that we really need to be drilling down more on specific things that have changed over 26 years, like fresh, frozen, slow-freeze vitrification, culture media? Yeah, that's a pretty sophisticated comment or a statistical question. And I think the answer is if we knew what to adjust for, it's better to adjust for those specific things. But in the absence of that, the best surrogate marker I think of is is adjusting per year because that kind of takes things in aggregate. Not perfect, but I think it's the appropriate way to do it for this trial. But again, we all know this. We can't control for everything, even though we have a, you know, a very good model or a very smart statistician. There's still things that are confounding our findings. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for, for today. Thanks for joining another episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air. By the time you're listening to this, we should be also putting together our live from ASRM interview series spearheaded by Dr. Michael Simone, who's going to be organizing a series of interviews live from the ASRM with authors, with presenters, and with notable people within the ASRM and fertility and sterility. So stay tuned for that special episode dropping hopefully very soon after this. And remember, as good as this is listening on a treadmill, you have to tell other people to listen to it as well. And we love receiving listener mail. So if you mm -hmm. wanted to drop a comment or push back on any of the things that we said, you can email us at fertilitysterility at gmail.com and make sure you put FNS podcast in the subject line and we'll make sure to read it and hopefully address it on our next recording. Kurt, Thank Anise, thanks so much. Always great to be with you. Until next time. Thank you all. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect Fertility and Sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. <laughs>